Hello, and welcome for the very first time to the Musonomics Podcast. I'm Larry Miller. Musonomics is brought to you from the NYU Steinhardt Music Business Program. Musonomics will look through the lens of data and analytics to separate signal from noise and provide insight into what's happening now and what's coming next in the music and culture industries. This week on Musonomics, the state of physical music retail and the surprising rise of vinyl record sales. We'll have a conversation with Jim Donio of the Music Business Association about what the vinyl revolution looks like. We'll hear from Michael Kurtz about Record Store Day and its impact on retail. And we'll hear from industry analyst Russ Krupnik of Music Watch about his insights on consumer music preferences. But first... What you want for it? Ah! Oh, no. You know what? I don't think I'm selling it this week. Maybe next week. Oh, no. You said that last week. Did I? Yeah, well, I just... That was Barry, played by Jack Black in the movie High Fidelity. Barry works at Championship Records, a record store owned by Rob Gordon, played by John Cusack. Barry's just refused to sell a Captain Beefheart record to a sniffling, bespectacled crate urchin when a much cooler store regular, Lewis, pipes up. You know, I don't have that record. I'll buy it for 40. Rob. So, now why would you sell it to me and not to him? Because you're not a geek, Lewis. You guys are snob. No, we're not. No, seriously, you're totally elitist. You feel like the unappreciated scholars, so you're shit on the people who know less than you. No, which is everybody. Yeah. High Fidelity, ostensibly about love, its apparition and dissipation, has become a cult classic for audiophiles and vinyl collectors alike because of the way John Cusack's character, the owner of a small independent record store, translates everything through music, specifically his record collection. It's as if the whole world is shaped and contoured by the grooves of his records viewing everything through a record pressed into fancy, transparent vinyl. I guess it looks as if you're reorganizing your records. records. Yeah. Um, what is this, uh, chronological? No. Not alphabetical. Nope. What? Autobiographical. No f way. When High Fidelity came out in 2000, the vinyl industry was dying and only a select few were even mourning. After all, the CD was introduced in 1982, and vinyl's heyday was in the mid to late 70s, when sales rarely dipped below 450 million units per year. By the late 80s, the number of vinyl units sold annually had essentially halved, dropping under 250 million units per year. Between 1987 and 1990, that number halved again, and the vinyl industry seemed to be locked in a death spiral. That was the economic reality for the fictitious championship records of high fidelity. The fictional world of Rob Gordon coincided with the non-fiction world of discarded turntables and a customer base comprised almost exclusively of freaks and nerds that searched almost exclusively for the freakish and nerdy. In the 15 years since that movie came out, the record store customer base has been changing. We went into some of the record stores still operating in and around New York's East Village 
to see why people were there and how they felt about vinyl in the digital age. I like coming in, I like talking to the, uh, to the owners of these kind of places because they know a lot about music and often they can recommend something new. I want to relax and enjoy music, I'd rather listen to a record. Me personally, if you're asking me personally. Most music sounds better on a record player than it does on a digital source. So kids are coming around to realizing that, hey man, vinyl, vinyl is the sound to go with. I'd love to get a record player one day, and then I think I'd start buying them more. So definitely because that, and just the, the uh, retro vibe that it would give off and like getting to listen to an actual It changes my listening experience mm -hmm. that way. Even if it's just on iTunes, it'll go into the next album that you have. You're not in control. You concentrate more on it. Your attention is drawn. And it's a really cool experience that everybody used to do, but now they don't. Because that's, that's what having vinyl records is all about. You want to have a physical thing you, you can uh, hold and look at and, and also listen to the music and uh, it take you on a journey. You know? Vinyl is cool again. In 2014, about 8 million units generated sales of $300 million out of the 7 billion in total music sales, which also includes the sale of CDs, paid downloads, and streaming. So, how did the record stores go from vinyl graveyards, picked over almost exclusively by snobby crate diggers, to the vibrant, buzzing, and diverse scene that can now be found in most stores? We sat down with Jim Donio of the Music Business Association, also known as Music Biz, to hear his thoughts. So there's been this prevailing, I guess, notion that anybody under 35 who's sort of now part of, the, you know, being the digital natives, if you will, that they have no interest in owning anything or collecting anything or holding anything or having any kind of tactile experience. and. The fact of the matter is, when you look at what's happened with vinyl, uh, all of what has happened flies in the face of that assumption. Because this younger demographic, you know, they may not want to purchase CDs, and you know, the stats do show that. But they still want. We're, you know, the, the hum, human nature uh, kind of relates to people wanting to have things. Things we like things. And uh, so I think that has been a big aspect of what we're calling this vinyl revolution or resurgence. I mean, it's kind of always been there, but you know, in the past, like under 10 years or so, it's had this uh, kind of astounding rebound. People felt like it was just sort of gonna be this very short-lived trend and scratch your head and figure out why, and a year from now it'll be gone. Well, you know, we're probably now eight or nine years into it and it's continuing to grow. And I think it's because uh, there's a younger demographic that has re kind of embraced the fact that you wanna own something, you wanna collect something, you want the experience, you wanna sit down and dedicate time. There's the warmth and the sound of, of vinyl. Um, there's just, there's a whole sort of culture now that has kind of come about again. Uh, and, and this shared experience now of this under 35 demographic being able to have and commune with their parents or their grandparents about vinyl. So you look at that and that's sort of another head scratcher and you'll say, well, like, where are they going to, how are kids going to experience this? Well, guess what? Would you have ever thought you'd walk into a Walmart or a Target store 
in 2015 and be pushing your cart down the aisle and see turntables? Well, guess what? In 2015, you are seeing turntables for sale, uh, not just in you know the cool sort of re you know record stores, music stores, or you know Urban Outfitters, which is a big purveyor uh, these days of vinyl. But you will also see vinyl you know in Whole Foods. You also see vinyl. You can get vinyl on Amazon, which is you know probably the biggest seller of vinyl right now. So it's it's really coming from a lot of different directions. And the amalgamation of all of this is that we have, you know, this great, you know, vinyl business in 2015. Can you talk about the impact of Record Store Day? Yeah, I mean, Record Store Day has, you know, virtually single-handedly um, really gotten people of, you know, kind of all ages and cultures and demographics, not just in the United States, but really around the world to kind of recapture the love for shopping in a physical store, uh, for looking at and kind of recognizing or rewarding both the commercial and the cultural contributions that these businesses make to their communities. You know, they are, they're fixtures, they're part of the, the area or the community where they are, whether it's an arts district, you know, wherever it is, whether it's, you know, affiliated with another type of business, They've, uh, they've kind of reimagined what they can be and what their contributions can be and introduced Record Store Day uh, to, you know, it's one day a year, but it's become like a holiday, if you will, for, for music fans. It's the third Saturday in April every year, so it'll be April 18th this year, um, and uh, has spun off a secondary sort of uh, celebration of that around the fourth quarter, which is back to Black Friday, which is sort of the um, uh, counterbalance to sort of the huge, you know, um, mammoth shopping that people do uh, the day after Thanksgiving, but also recognizing that, you know, music is a great gift. And, and vinyl in particular can be a great gift that people can sort of unwrap and love and CDs as well, because we're still selling obviously a lot of CDs. So Record Store Day, um, the organizers, primarily you know, three uh, independent coalitions in the United States, uh, the Department of Record Stores, the Coalition of Independent <clears throat> Music Stores and the Alliance of Independent Media Stores <clears throat> came together, um, you know, herded the cats, worked together and uh, you know, built you know, from the ground up, this, you know, concept, which has now grown to be literally a worldwide phenomenon uh, on this third Saturday in April every year, where, again, would you have imagined in 2015, when, you know, as little as, you know, a handful of years ago, people were saying, oh, there won't be any, you know, people will not be buying any kind of physical music, there won't be any stores, you know, with, uh, Tower going away and Virgin going away and, and these other stores going away, there was sort of this sweeping generalization that everything would go away. Well, obviously we've seen that's not true. There's a healthy, vibrant, engaged, uh, you know, very savvy uh, business community of independent physical stores who, as I've said, came together, created this uh, concept and event of Record Store Day and I think they, you know, opened a lot of people's eyes to what the, the power could be of them coming together and uh, giving people an opportunity to celebrate. So, you know, 2015 
we are going to see literally hundreds and hundreds of people lined up outside of these stores around the world waiting, just waiting for that opportunity to, you know, snap up some of these collectible limited edition, you know, items that artists and labels are creating explicitly, specifically for this day. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It is incredible. And I know that for many of those stores, this will be their biggest day of the year. Absolutely. Yeah. For, for many of the stores, it, it has grown to eclipse uh, you know, Christmas and the day after Thanksgiving, you know, which had historically been, you know, the biggest days, this, the buildup to this, because they, you know, they're very smart in, in terms of how they promote this and how they publicize it. So they sort of lead up to it with uh, teasing the, the fans with, you know, the items that are going to be available. And every item is not available in every quantity at every place. So therefore, you're going to create this uh, you know, anticipation and this momentum of people lining up, you know, because they've got their lists, they wait in line and they know what items are, have been publicized and, you know, they're going in with a shopping list of, you know, what they want to try to pick up. And uh, it's, it's created this sort of spirit of community where there was already community. I mean, it's the original social networking. People went to these stores to commune and to talk to people and, so it's kind of recapturing the spirit of that, um, you know, not just for the one day. I mean, there's certainly a halo effect throughout the year, but, you know, they've galvanized, you know, all this promotion and publicity, you know, for this day. And, you know, music fans, um, you know, em have embraced it. And so have artists. Artists have really embraced it because it enables them to sort of think back to when they were young and they were thinking about being in the music business and what going and shopping in a music store, you know, meant to them. So this is an opportunity for them to sort of pay it forward and give back by creating something that is designed, you know, expressly for, you know, for music fans on this day. That song is The Charade by D'Angelo and the Vanguard. It was originally released last year as part of D'Angelo's Black Messiah album, but it's due to be re-released this year on 12-inch vinyl for Record Store Day. In that last interview, Jim Donio made the claim that Record Store Day almost single-handedly revived the vinyl industry with special edition, limited run releases that can only be purchased at participating stores on Record Store Day while supplies last. It's truly become a phenomenon, not just here in the U.S., but worldwide. We spoke with Michael Kurtz, one of the co-founders of the music industry's newest holiday, Michael, what drove you and some friends to start a record store day eight years ago? At that point in my life, I was uh, running a coalition of independent music stores. That, um, we have about 70-some stores in the United States and a few in Canada, and that we pulled together to, uh, to get competitive terms with uh, big box stores because uh, the way music businesses run on that side of things is uh, 
the price that you pay for a product can often be determined by marketing strategy, believe it or not, even though there are laws that say that everybody's supposed to get the same price. Well, in theory, that's true, but uh, often somebody will say, well, okay, if you give me X amount of dollars, I will run a marketing campaign for you. And then they apply that money to the wholesale cost of a product and brings it down, which explains why box stores for a long time were able to sell things really cheaply, cheaper than we could buy them. And you mean the big box stores like Best Buy, Target, and Walmart, so on, Walmart. Yeah, yeah. It even extends to online. People use that strategy. So we really couldn't win that battle. We weren't big enough... Um, even though we're essential to the soul of the music business, that doesn't go very far on Wall Street. I think uh, Jim Morrison's famous quote is, money trumps soul every time. So anyway, we all got together to uh, uh, commiserate and figure out what we were going to do in response. And then um, I report to a board. And one of the guys said to me prior to our board meeting, uh, record stores are irrelevant. No one cares. My employees don't care. We used to be able to get promo CDs, and that was one of the perks of working in a record store. You got to hear the record first. Now it's on iTunes weeks before we even get this, the privilege of selling it. My average age of my employee has gone from 23 years old to 48. Um, and there are no girls in the store anymore. Uh, we've got major problems, and you need to fix it. So I extended an invitation to a lot of other retailers outside of our coalition and asked them to come and we would brainstorm and we uh, uh, got inspired by the comic book industry's uh, free comic day and looked at what they were doing and creating special pieces of products to give to their to their best customers and they celebrate on this day and so we started the discussion like could we do something similar to that and that's how it got started in the first year of record store day I understand that there were maybe 10 unique special pieces of yeah. music that were released that day. What will it be like in 2015? Well, this year we'll do a little over 400. Last year we did uh, close to 500. We're trying to trim it back because uh, the feedback from the stores is just hard for them to handle that much goodness at one time. It's just too much. And because of the nature of what we do in that we're creating little pieces of art, limited edition they're not meant to be mass commercial pieces there's uh, you know problems that come along with that uh, record store they celebrate around the world in every continent except for antarctica now we're closer to uh occupy wall street than we are i don't know uh you know valentine's day if that makes sense and so who's coming in and doing the buying on record store day well when it first started out it was more of the uh ponytail, bald spot type guys, 40s, 50s, guys like myself, um, collectors, people who really uh, were passionate about, you know, the bands of their youth. Um, and then there was a lot of metal people that came. We launched it with Metallica, um, uh, a band that was outspoken about artist rights and were actually quite, quite crucified for it early on, uh, saying we want to be paid which is now a lot of people have picked up on that banner and are, are saying it quite loudly. Yes, they were very early on that bandwagon. Yeah, they were the very first one, and they took the heat. So they were the very first band to say, hey, we like record stores. Because at the time, like I said, we were irrelevant. Everybody had written us off. Tower had closed. If you picked up any magazine, newspaper, it was all about how the record stores were going out of business and they were some kind of antique store. Um, but 
to answer your question now, the average age of a person coming to celebrate Record Store Day is probably around 24. And it's an even split between uh, women and girls. And girls are now working in record stores once again. So last year, I don't know about the uh, Record Store Day uh, weekend numbers, yeah. but you can do a little bit of math and calculate that the approximate number of vinyl records that were sold in the United States was pr- probably something like 8 million pieces. Sure. Any projection for what we might see in vinyl in 2015? Well, it depends if like a, a, a very relevant artist like a Jack White or something puts out another record. I mean, I think his record alone was a was a million units or something like that, which was, if somebody had said that seven years ago, you know, if somebody's going to put out an album and sell a million copies on vinyl, you've been laughed out of the room. What we found is that when somebody uh, leaves the digital experience and comes to the vinyl experience of listening to music, they purchase two or three times as much music because there's a sort of a, a reward addiction thing that happens with vinyl. If, if anybody who grew up with it in the 70s and 80s knows what I'm talking about, you, you you get it and it's such a pleasant and wonderful experience and then you have all these memories attached to it. So you want more of it and you want more. So uh, I would think that we would, we, I don't know, it'll be next year, but probably the year after we'll probably double the numbers. So... What is a great independent retailer today? I mean, you could name some of the best yeah. retailers that there are, yeah. uh, whether you want to do that or not, I don't know. Um, but what makes for a great retailer and a great retail experience today? Uh, just sort of an honesty that you have to have to run a record store, uh, and the customers pick up on that. And and. I, that sounds flaky, and I, yeah, I lived in California for seven years, so I probably some of my hippie thing is coming out right now. But there, there is this sort of intangible that the really good record stores, like a Bull Moose up in Maine, or Soundgarden, Baltimore, uh, uh, you know, Amoeba. There's Rasputin. There's there's tons of them. Uh, Twist and Shout. All of these guys are uh, who run the stores are a little bit. They're kind of mutants. They're kind of oddballs. They're in love with music and the idea of, of turning people on to music, that's how they started out by doing it. And uh, that lives on and it permeates everything they do. So that goes into everything from what you see when you go into their stores, how their employees talk to you, how they connect, uh, how their social media is used uh, for everything from Instagram to you know twi- Twitter to Facebook. But there's this whole other thing that for a while seemed like it was going to be thoroughly stamped out. I mean, it really felt like it when uh, when all the big box stores rolled through, which was all part of that, it just really just cleaned us out. I mean, it pretty much flattened out just the, the, the whole world of record stores. We got, got it back together again, started to make our connection, reconnected with ourselves and why we were in this to begin with. Then we started talking to artists and saying, do you still feel the same way? And they go like, yeah, we still like you guys. And then it just, and they started saying, you know, sending us nice letters. Like Paul McCartney sent us the nicest email about how he loved record stores and record store day. And so during that period in between the Napster revolution and people starting to access music as a service, and of course the growth of iTunes and the closure of uh, many independent retailers, as well as 
household names like Tower and Virgin and Musicland Sam Goody. How did the presses who could manufacture vinyl at any volume stay in business? I'll start out by saying that uh, in the, what happened with vinyl at the end of, it, of its life when CDs before CDs came in, was everybody was so convinced it's, there was no turning back because there's not many times that that's happened in history. Um, EMI in the UK, when they built their new offices, actually used the lays and presses for their vinyl manufacturing to, uh, they put it in the foundation of the new building. They use it as filler. So they, that's how little value it had. Um, and so... When you fast forward all the way to 2007, when, when we start saying to people, hey, can you press seven inches and 12 inch records and stuff? There were only about six plants around the United States that were in doing it. And we partnered originally for, with Warner Brothers. I had a guy named Jeff that worked there, Jeff Bowers, very subversive individual. And um, he said, no, I got, I got you covered. We're fine. And we're going to print all this stuff and it's going to be great quality. And then one day I asked him, like, well, how did you do it? And he goes, well, we used all those communist uh, plants in Eastern Europe. I'm like, what are you talking? He goes, yeah. He goes, one of the weird anomalies uh, uh, occurred when uh, those Eastern Bloc countries got folded back into uh, the Western world, you know, our, our side of thing, econ the economy or whatever, is that all those manufacturing plants, vinyl manufacturing plants were still there. They never destroyed them. They're all just sitting there and they'd actually been printing records and stuff and selling them like, you know, cause they were behind the curve. So now my understanding is those plants in Eastern Europe are running 24, seven, 24 hours a day, seven days a week and cannot keep up with the demand. So the only reason that the vinyl revolution is that happened was because of the, the communist bloc countries where they still had manufacturing plants. Incredible. And today, I imagine there's much more capacity in place than there was in 2007. Yeah, there's some new plants that have come open and people have also gone back and found all these manufacturing plants like in the Midwest where that did like gospel records and things like that. And uh, Southern Possum, I think they just bought that label, uh, just bought six uh, Lay's you know, uh, manufacturing units and they're putting them online. Uh, I think URP, which is partially owned by uh, Jack White, they've just put in new facilities that they're building. And somebody told me, I think it's Warner Music. I don't know this for a fact. I think they're building a new plant, too. So new plants are now starting to come online. So even with the Eastern Bloc presses running at full capacity, and even as old vinyl presses from forgotten factories in the U.S. Bible Belt are brought back online, the manufacturers are struggling to keep up with demand. Perhaps the biggest benefit of the digital music marketplace is that scarcity in the supply chain is virtually eliminated. With vinyl, that scarcity of supply becomes a bottleneck. The place where that strain on the production line is most heavily felt is not at the top of the industry, where big labels can invest significant capital to get things done but at small, independent labels who can find it difficult to get vinyl pressed, especially when record store day rolls around. That's led a small faction of indie labels and artists to speak out. Brenton Cook runs Haymaker Records, a small, independent record label out of Kansas City, Missouri. He says that he truly enjoys record store day 
and especially its ability to bring in customers that may not have set foot in a record store otherwise. But he's experienced the problem of too little capacity for peak demand. I mean, it is it is definitely a lot harder to get things pressed, and I've noticed just the change even in just the last year. I mean, turnaround times that I was getting quoted, you know, at, at times of the year after record store day would be, you know, you could get stuff done in maybe like five or six weeks, maybe seven weeks. And now places are, you know, telling you three, oh, three to three and a half months. That really makes it tricky to be a small independent. But Brenton still sees record store day as a good thing. I, my guess would be, I mean, just the whole thing in general helps itself. I think that it, it does kind of feed into the greater system and, you know, just, just getting people in the stores and buying stuff. I mean, even if they don't buy stuff, they're looking around, they're shopping, and, you know, they may see they may see an album by somebody that they've never heard of the name, they like the artwork, or they just like the name of the band, or, you know, but next time that band comes through town, they can connect to it somehow. They have some sort of connection to the artist, and, you know, hopefully it means some things to the artist. Diedrich Moore is one of those artists that, despite not releasing anything special for Record Store Day, could still benefit from the quasi-holiday's existence. His band's latest album, Robots of Munich, was released on Brenton Cook's Haymaker label late last year via digital download, cassette tape, and on beautiful red vinyl in specially folded packaging that Diedrich folded himself. Robots of Munich is a concept album that deals with a Blade Runner-esque futurescape where androids search in vain for a place in the human world, something he can identify with as an indie musician operating within an industry that isn't always designed for him. I mean, this happens with every cycle of music in the music world, and it's kind of translated to this in the actual retail world where... It used to be this cool thing that all the small indie, the people in the know, you know, hey, you know about Record Store Day? You know, and it was like, if you knew, then it was this cool sort of group that you were in, and you were there's a communal spirit about it of like, yeah, we're all... We're all in this to, you know, to to make records still cool and try to keep it going. And you got to remember, you're looking at, you know, punk bands and electronic acts and indie rock were the only ones putting out vinyl. So it's sort of been our our thing. And then now all of a sudden it's everybody's thing. And so there's going to be that sort of, but this is mine, kind of like when alternative music was underground and then all of a sudden it's all over the radio. So... So there's some growing pains that, that happen with when something small turns into a large. Russ Krupnik has been researching the music industry for several decades. Russ's company, Music Watch, just did some new research on the state of music retail. Well, uh, I, I think it's important to keep in mind uh, that you still have significant numbers of people buying. Let's just start with that. Um, I, I would guess among the population, you've still got close to a third, anywhere between a quarter and a third of people uh, who are 
purchasing CDs and purchasing downloads. Um, in fact, there's probably, I mean, just to give you, give you some context, um, there's probably twice as many CD buyers in the U.S. as there are people who subscribe to Netflix. Um, so, you know, that gives you a, a, a sense of what the size is. The reality is, at least on the on the CD side of things, is that you know that base shrinks every single year. Uh, it shrinks by a few million people each each year. Um, and on the digital download side, um, it's it's smaller than it's actually still smaller than the number of people who buy CDs. And so, what have you noticed this year about the vinyl business? I think the vinyl business is is really interesting. Um, we would estimate that there's about 16 million vinyl buyers, which again, just to kind of put that back into context, uh, there's twice as many people who bought at least one vinyl record um, as who paid for a music subscription last year. Uh, so that just gives you kind of a, a ratio. Not as big as CDs, not as big, big as downloads, not as big as the number of people who use Pandora, um, but not an insignificant number of, of consumers who are buying. Uh, the paid subscription um, growth rate is, I think, about close to 30%. Um, and uh, on the, the, you know, the vinyl side, vinyl overall, I think, was up something like 35% in terms of revenue last year. So... You do have a couple of these. They, they are, if we want to call them formats, um, they are smaller formats than, than some of the legacy formats, certainly smaller than, than free streaming uh, or the use of something like YouTube for music. Um, but as I said, they're, they're not inconsequential and they are, they are growing even off of a fairly small base. So where do you think this goes in, say, three to five years for vinyl? Look, I, I still think vinyl is a niche product. Um, I, I, I wouldn't see I wouldn't see mass reintroduction of turntables, for example. It just doesn't sync with the way that people listen to music. You know, we listen to music in our in our cars. Uh, we listen to music on the go. Whether that's uh, you know, I, I listen. I spend most of my time listening when I'm on planes. But you see people on planes, trains, and as I said, automobiles, um, or at the gym, and so on. So I think that's really the way that people are, are listening. So turntables don't really sync up with that. Um, but you know, I, I do think that there is a small group of people, whether they're older consumers who are you know real music aficionados, nostalgia buffs who say this is the only way that you can listen to, you know, Miles Davis, uh, or whether it's younger people who are collecting and maybe supporting their favorite artist. I think those are the kind of the two ends of the continuum that you have for vinyl. And there's no reason that, that either one of those groups should, should um, uh, disappear. In fact, I actually think that's where the CD is going to eventually go, that if we come back, you know, if you walk into Best Buy 10 years from now, um, you're going to be looking at, uh, very highly priced box sets of CDs, um, much in the same way that we, we see for vinyl now. I got a stack of records here, a stack of records there. I got records scattered all over everywhere. But, but for I this episode, that's all the time we've got. Thank you to this week's guests, Jim Donio, Michael Kurtz, Russ Krupnik, Brenton Cook, and Diedrich Moore. If you like what you heard, please, please, please rate us highly on iTunes. Tell your friends. And tell us at Musonomics.com. The Musonomics podcast was produced at NYU by Sam Behrens, Travis Fodor, Karina Barrasso, Alex Lechtman, and Anayeli Perez. Special thanks to Ron Sadoff, Catherine Moore, and Tom Beyer. 
from the NYU Steinhardt Music Business Program. I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening to Musonomics. Through the records, an hour or two, and I've about decided what I've got to do. I'm gonna get me a guitar and learn to play. I'll serenade my baby night and day, and I'll play the song.